Hello, and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by our news editor, Nick Bostock, to talk about the latest news affecting general practice. Coming up, we're talking about the GP contract changes in England for 2023-24, which have been imposed on practices for the second year in a row after the government and the BMA failed to reach an agreement. We'll be looking at what the changes are, the implications for general practice, and what could happen next. We'll also be discussing this week's unprecedented junior doctor strike and speaking to doctors on the picket lines. And we'll be looking at what this week's budget means for doctors' pensions and the NHS as a whole. That's all to come on this episode of Talking General Practice. So first up, since our last news episode, details of changes to the GP contract for 2023-24 have been announced. This will be the second year in a row that contract changes will be imposed on the profession after the BMA and the government failed to reach agreement. This is also the last year of the current five-year contract and negotiations for what happens after 2024 are going to be crucial for the future of the profession. So a breakdown in talks again this year does not bode well for those discussions. Nick, we've talked in our last news episode about the BMA's initial reaction to the government's contract offer, and we said we expected the contract to be imposed. We'll get into details of what's in the contract itself in a second. But while the BMA is clearly not happy with some of the changes, the main point of contention from its point of view is the funding still, isn't it? That's right. The BMA says the contract imposed on the profession threatens to do irreparable damage to general practice. The central reason is that the BMA says the contract totally ignores calls for the government and NHS England to offer more support to practices when they're facing sharp rises in costs, both in terms of rising bills for heating and lighting and so on, but also from the need to increase wages to retain staff in the face of the cost of living crisis. The BMA has accused the government of producing a contract that shows it completely failed to listen to what GPs need. GP leaders have said that this package of changes to the contract for general practice, which, as you mentioned, is the second one in a row imposed on the profession, meaning that talks, negotiations broke down, will leave lots of primary care staff wondering how their practice can possibly survive. And there are some changes in there that practices might welcome, which we'll come on to. But overall, the BMA is really worried that this contract means more work without the resources to deliver it. The big worry is the rising cost of inflation, costs for practices, and there's nothing in there that's going to cover that. I mean, I've been talking to a couple of people, and I think they really are quite worried about the financial implications of all of this. One of the people I was speaking to said that they won't be able to afford staff pay rises this year. That could be a real issue if we see, you know, a significant increase in gender for change pay rates that staff in other part of the NHS are paid, you know, as a result of the strikes and pay negotiations that are going on at the minute. You know, unless the government provides funding to practices to cover a sort of similar increase for their staff as well, which seems really highly unlikely, practices are not going to be able to match what other NHS staff are likely to be getting. Details of the actual changes were announced in a letter to practices at the start of last week. Obviously, the big headline change and the one thing that's likely to cause some very big concerns for practices relates to access. Nick, what exactly are practices being asked to do? Access to general practice features really heavily in the contract, perhaps not unexpectedly given the intense focus on access in media coverage and statements from various recent health and social care secretaries. But the the most significant change is a new requirement to make sure all patients are offered an assessment of need or signposted to an appropriate service at first contact with the practice. 
What this means is that practices will no longer be allowed to ask patients to ring back later. So this suggests that they'll basically have to book them an appointment or refer them on elsewhere, literally the first time they call or walk into reception. The idea here seems to be to end the so-called 8am rush for appointments, because practices will no longer be able to say, all of our appointments today have been booked, so please call again tomorrow morning at 8am. Obviously, implementing this change, appointment or referral on the first call is a huge ask at a time when demand for appointments is higher than ever. Another major change on access comes with repurposing a big tranche of funding from the Investment and Impact Fund, or IIF, which is a set of targets for primary care networks. There were 36 targets for PCNs through the IIF, but this is now going to be cut back to just five for next year. So in the coming financial year, these five targets are going to be worth £59 million in total for work around flu, vaccinations, uh, learning disability health checks, early cancer diagnosis, and inevitably a two-week access target. But the rest of the funding from the IIF, so that's nearly £250 million, will be used solely to incentivise practices to improve patients' experience of contacting them and to push practices to improve access for patients who need to be seen on the same day or within two weeks, depending on the urgency of, of each case. And 70% of this funding will be offered upfront and the rest for delivering against access improvement plans that practices or PCNs are going to have to agree with commissioners. But as a whole... These changes show just how much the spotlight is going to be on access to primary care in the final year of the five-year GP contract. That change there with the money going to PCNs is also about, I guess, trying to encourage PCNs to get their practices to address it and maybe looking at it at a more PCN level. You've spoken to some GPs about these changes. What are they telling you are likely to be the real problems for practices and how do you think they're going to cope with some of these changes? Practices have been responding to sustained heavy pressure over recent years by falling back on BMA guidance on safe working in general practice. So moving to 15 minute appointments, for example, pushing back on unfunded work and moves like that. But several GPs I spoke to said that one of the changes we could see more of because of these new access requirements is waiting lists in general practice. So this is something the BMA's safe working guidance also recommends. But it's something that a lot of GP practices have been quite reluctant to consider up until now. You can see how it would work in this context in that if practices have a waiting list rather than just saying we've run out of appointments for today, so please bring back tomorrow, they'll say instead you'll go on the waiting list. But the concern is that with limited capacity and high demand for appointments, it would become really difficult to manage and particularly within the constraints of needing to offer patients access within two weeks. So, you know, if more urgent appointments come along and consume the vast majority of available appointments, people on the waiting list who are less urgent might keep getting pushed back. And before you know it, you have a similar situation to the colossal hospital backlog. One of the other things GPs have said is that if this requirement comes in, we could simply see a massive rise in pressure on NHS 111 and A&E, because if practices have offered up all the appointments they have already and they can't tell patients to call back later, one of the only other things that they can do is to tell their patients to call 111 or go to A&E. And ultimately, this is the problem with a requirement like this that hasn't been backed up with the resources to deliver it. One GP called it a whack-a-mole approach, where you clamp down on the problem in one place only for it to pop up again elsewhere. 
we know that there is a general practice access recovery plan that NHS England is working on. Do we have uh, any ideas about what's in that and what it could mean for practices? I mean, presumably it's going to have to link in with some of these new contract requirements. Yeah, so the NHS England letter announcing the contract changes for 2023-24, so the coming financial year, said that delivery plan for recovering access to primary care would be published shortly. It said very little about it, only that it would set out how practices and PCNs can be supported to improve access during 2023-24. I think we can expect it to fit around the access requirements set out in the contract, as well as the aims around improving access to primary care services set out in the Fuller report from last year. And that report by Dr. Claire Fuller, who's a practicing GP and the chief executive of an integrated care board, talked about the two key issues around access being the need to meet demand for same day urgent care, as well as making sure general practice has the capacity to deliver continuity of care for patients who need it. Talking about people with long term conditions and multiple long term conditions, potentially. And the Fuller report gives examples of how some areas have tried to build capacity to meet that urgent care need by working across PCN areas and through collaboration with nursing and pharmacy teams, for example. So I think the access recovery plan for primary care is also likely to be looking at how to drive some of the fuller vision of developing services at so-called neighbourhood level. Obviously, access is the big thing that's changed, but perhaps it's worth running through some of the other changes as well. So there are some changes around childhood immunisation, which will hopefully go some way to addressing some real problems practices have faced in the last two years since targets were moved into the QOF. The main one is a new personalised care adjustment. So that's what was exception reporting in the olden days. And that's going to apply for patients who registered at the practice too late to be vaccinated in line with the immunisation schedule. So that's either too late in age, you know, too close to the, the age limits or too late in the financial year for practices to have time to, to vaccinate them. Previously, practices with patients falling into those categories were really penalised because it was almost impossible to get them vaccinated in time and they were basically counted as unvaccinated, those children. The repayment system that meant practices that failed to hit 80% immunisation coverage and had to give money back, that's going to be removed. And the quaff thresholds are slightly lower, which is probably a positive as well. Um, elsewhere in the quaff, there are a couple of changes to indicators. And all of the points practices usually receive for maintaining quaff disease registers will automatically be awarded to practices based on 2022-23 figures, so this year's figures. So that's going to actually reduce the overall number of quaff indicators from 74 to 55 which means an extra £97 million of funding will go directly to practices rather than being in the quaff. I think until we see the full guidance on, on all of this stuff, which has not yet been published at the time of recording, we've only seen the NHS England letter, it's not entirely clear what that change around registers really means because you know I expect practices will be expected to maintain those registers. So that work will still be ongoing. It's just it's not going to be in the quaff anymore. In terms of primary care networks, NHS England said there's no new service specifications in the coming year. So that's no set requirements for work PCNs will need to do over and above what they've already been asked to do. So that's obviously a good thing. There are some changes to the additional roles reimbursement scheme. Advanced nurse practitioners have been added to the scheme, which a lot of networks have been calling for for a while. So that's probably good. Apprentice physicians associates have been added to the scheme. And also the cap on the number of mental health practitioners that networkers can recruit has been removed as well. One of the other big things is patient access to prospective records. That is definitely going ahead from October this year. 
and it will cover all patients and all practices unless patients themselves have opted out or specific exceptions have been applied on on particular records. This program, we've talked about this on the podcast before, it's been beset with problems and a lot of GPs have real concerns about how it's all going to work. So I expect there will be issues that come up again about this as we get nearer to October. Those are the the main changes. I mean, one of the other things that's worth mentioning is that NHS England has committed to reviewing the QOF in the coming year ahead of the new contract that will come into effect from April 2024. So that's the contract after this five-year contract ends with the aim of making the QOF more targeted and streamlined. NHS England has said that that's on the basis of feedback from the BMA practices and the House of Commons Health and Social Care Committee's report on the future of general practice. If you remember, that report called for all incentive targets in the QOF and Investment and Impact Fund to be scrapped and the money put back into core funding so that GPs are, quote, treated like professionals and incentivised to provide relationship-based care for all patients. We know the BMA and the RCGP both also favour scrapping targets and incentivising continuity of care. Actually, this week, Nick, you wrote a piece about a report from the RCGP that called for the QOF to be suspended now to help practices cope with workload. But then after that, they said it should be stripped back permanently to just five to 10 key indicators that have the greatest evidence of impact on patient outcomes. So I think it's quite broad agreement from all sides that even if the QOF isn't scrapped, it needs to be massively pared back. And NHS England actually seems to be on the same page as that. So I think it's quite likely that we'll see a very different quaff from 2024 onwards. That's probably what's changing, but none of that obviously really addresses the financial challenges that practices are going to face in the coming year. The BMA has been talking about consulting members on what happens next. What does that mean? And are we heading for some sort of industrial action from GPs? We know that practices are facing really significant challenges. A survey we did at the end of last year showed that nine in 10 GP partners felt the financial sustainability of their practice had been undermined by inflation and cost of living pressures. And these pressures come on top of an unfunded NHS pay rise for the 2022-23 financial year that cost the average practice tens of thousands of pounds. And financial pressure is heaped on top of workforce and workload issues, which the RCGP said earlier this month had left a quarter of practices fearing uh, closure. So in that context, the imposition of a contract that the BMA says does nothing to help with these pressures, and in fact, adds to workload overall, is a really significant blow that could well lead to industrial action in general practice. I've spoken to a number of GPs who feel general practice now needs to follow junior doctors, nurses, ambulance workers and consultants by moving towards industrial action. And they want a ballot soon to test GPs' appetite for industrial action. Action could take a number of forms. Withdrawal from PCNs, which LMCs have already voted for, and something that uh, an indicative ballot about 15 months ago suggested more than half of practices were prepared to do, is one option. That could be complicated, though, by the fact that practices are more likely to be willing to opt out of the PCN DES, the part of their contract that links them into PCNs, within a formal opt-out window. And the next window is likely to close around the end of April. And that doesn't give the BMA long to get a ballot out if that's what it wants to do. There are other options, though. The profession could look at collecting undated contract resignation letters from practices. And that's a measure that we we saw a few years ago in Northern Ireland. Or they could go for something like collective list closures, meaning practices would refuse to take on new patients. 
But although there is a lot of anger in general practice, industrial action still probably isn't a foregone conclusion because some GPs I spoke to say they're just not sure that enough practices will go for it. And that's partly because circumstances vary so much between different practices in terms of staffing, funding and and so on. Even people I spoke to who aren't 100% convinced that the profession will actually back industrial action want to see GPs asked what they're willing to do and they want that to happen soon. Before we move on, I just want to highlight to listeners that MIMS Learning Live is taking place in London on Friday the 9th of June. This one-day event is organised by our colleagues on MIMS Learning. There'll be five streams providing CPD learning on topics including women's health, dermatology, cardiovascular medicine, respiratory care and much more. Each stream provides delegates with 5.5 CPD hours of learning. You can register for your free place and find out more information including the full programme at mimslearninglive.com. Next up, this week saw junior doctors across England stage an unprecedented 72-hour walkout over pay. Yeah, I mean, it's a really significant moment for the NHS and for the government, isn't it? Uh, Thousands of junior doctors on strike for three days running, and they want their pay to be restored in real terms to the level it was at a decade and a half ago. Steady erosion has cut their pay by more than a quarter in real terms in the past 15 years. The BMA launched a campaign this week to highlight the fact that junior doctors are now paid less per hour than a barista working in Pret-a-Manger. So they're earning just over £14 an hour. And these strikes have really hit the NHS hard. Lots of procedures and appointments delayed, which underlines the importance of the junior doctor workforce within the NHS. And Emma, you went out on Monday to talk to some of the doctors on picket lines around London. What did they have to say? Yeah, well, we can hear from them, actually. I recorded a couple of interviews. So first up here, I'm speaking to Dr. Malinga Ratwat, who's a GP trainee in North London and a member of the BMA's GP trainee committee and junior doctor committee. My name is Malinga. I'm a GP registrar working in the Barnet area. Uh, I'm two years now into my GP training programme, but I've been working as a doctor for the last seven years. So why do you feel it's important that you're taking action here today? So junior doctors have had a real terms pay cut of 26% over the last 15 years or so, and that is really affecting us. Um, A lot of doctors nowadays are really going through financial hardships, um, and we we think it's unfair really that, uh, you know, doctors who've been working so hard, particularly through the recent COVID pandemic as well, are not being recognised by the government, uh, and we we are standing up to do something about that now. The vote was overwhelmingly in favour of, of strikes. Is, do you think, that, is there a real feeling amongst you and your colleagues that something needs to change? Yeah, absolutely. We had a really strong turnout for our ballot for industrial action. So we had 77.5% of our, our members turning up with 98% voting in favour. So we know that our membership feels strongly about this and uh, it's something that's been brewing for quite some time. Uh, and I think now our, our members are really fed up. You mentioned there about financial hardships. You yourself, or is any colleagues that have experienced particular difficulties? Speaking to my colleagues generally across the board, people are really struggling with the cost of living. We know that that's affecting everybody. But doctors in particular have unique circumstances that make it quite difficult for them. So we have to pay ongoing membership fees to our Royal Colleges. We have indemnity fees, a lot of costs associated with just being a doctor and coming into work. We know that new graduates are graduating with £85,000 of debt and the calculations show that many of these won't even be able to pay their student debt off over their lifetime. 
Um, so we're really worried about uh, the financial circumstances that doctors are, are in at the moment uh, and we feel that uh, for the level of sort of skills and qualifications that, that are involved with our day-to-day work that we should be paid a fair wage for that. And one of the other things, I know that this action is specifically about pay, but junior doctors are working in very tough conditions now because the state the NHS is in. And there's obviously a fear that without decent pay rise, you know, more and more doctors could leave the profession. Is that something that's sort of also motivating this? Yeah, absolutely. So as much as, um, you know, there's a justice element to this in terms of the fact that it's not fair for junior doctors to be paid 26% less in real terms compared to their predecessors in 2008, we also know that the NHS is going through an incredibly uh, difficult retention, staff retention crisis, and we know that pay is a factor in that. So we want a health service that can uh, deliver for patients and give good quality care to patients and we need the staff to be able to do that. We know that the NHS is its staff uh, and pay is a factor in retaining staff. So we recognise that this will also contribute towards a better health service for patients. And what would you say to other parts of the profession about why they should be supporting you? Absolutely. Look, we, we work with a multitude of pro- different professionals on, on a day-to-day basis. Uh, we know that our nursing colleagues in particular are feeling undervalued. Uh, we have a whole host of allied healthcare professionals that we work with. Uh, we want to work together to deliver really good quality care to our patients and so we ask for everybody's support and we absolutely stand in solidarity with our other colleagues who are taking action at this time as well. And what do you think sort of the impact of, of this, you know, without a, a decent pay increase, what do you think there could be the longer term impact for general practice? Um, particularly for general practice, we're worried about um, uh, retention of GPs. Uh, we know that there's 2,000 fewer full-time equivalent GPs working than since our records began. Um, and this is meaning that, that patients can't get appointments, and that's a big problem. So the bottom line is the government hasn't been paying attention to making sure that there are enough GPs to provide the appointments that the public need. Uh, and so retention is a huge factor, and this, this will help uh, patient care, really. I'm literally standing outside Downing Street right now and there are thousands of junior doctors on the opposite side of the road with um, loads of signs up, there's lots of chanting and singing, um, lots of honking of horns, the bus drivers, London bus drivers in particular seem to be very supportive of the junior doctors. So my name is Sodoslav Kitchen, I'm one of the registrars in, uh, in medicine in St Thomas Hospital. Okay. Okay. And can you just explain a bit why you're out here on strike today? Well we're supporting the general strike by junior doctors to demand the pay restoration section. Do you yourself, do you have colleagues who've experienced that kind of real financial hardship as a result of levels of pay at the minute? I have heard of people struggling financially, people not being able to to pay their mortgage and things like that. It really depends where you work and uh, what stage of your career you are and where do you live, so I'd say London is quite expensive. If the government doesn't do something about addressing levels of pay, what are your concerns about what could happen in in the future? Are you worried about more people leaving the profession? My personal concern, yes. The doctors are demanded everywhere in in the world and it's a highly skilled profession. Of course the doctors will leave or there will be less influx of trainees. I'm a foreign graduate so I can can speak for the foreign doctors and, and of course the financial incentive is very important. This protest today is specifically about pay, but junior doctors and the NHS as a whole is having a bit of a difficult time at the moment anyway. So are you worried that it's just going to make everything more difficult if more people leave? I mean, what are the pressures like where you work at the moment? 
If people leave, then the pressures will be absolutely enormous. Uh, currently, a lot of hospitals, a lot of trust in this country are struggling with filling their rotas. And let's not forget that junior doctors are not... These are the doctors who often are not that junior. It's doctors who are non, non-consultants, effectively. You have people in their 40s uh, very often being uh, still called junior doctor. Their financial uh, demands might be very high, much higher because of family and uh, other expenses. So the and having a lot of experience, they, they might choose to, to, to move abroad. Obviously, the protest and the strike was, was all, you know, pretty good-natured, but I think, you know, junior doctors are very, very angry. One thing that really struck me about the strike was that a lot of people were very unwilling to talk to journalists. They were really very, very wary about the media. There's been quite a lot of negative coverage about the strike and the BMA in particular in certain media outlets over the weekend, and and that's continued into this week. So perhaps it's not unsurprising that they were reluctant to talk, given that some of that coverage has been pretty unreasonable, really. GPs and practice staff obviously know exactly what it's like being on the end of negative media coverage and how demoralising and upsetting that can be. As journalists writing about general practice, we're quite used to speaking to GPs who are willing to speak out. So to encounter, you know, this whole group of younger doctors who feel that they can't speak out really, or that they don't want to because they're worried about what the fallout or the reaction they might get will be. It's quite a damning indictment, I think, of the way they've been treated. And there's also been a couple of really shocking examples of stories that have displayed a real unwillingness to understand the way junior doctors are paid and how training works. You know, These are qualified doctors. Yes, they are training to take on more senior roles in specific specialties, as Dr. Ratwalt mentions there. It brings with it very expensive courses and exam fees that they have to pay for themselves. So this is all coming out of their salary. But these are the doctors that really do the bulk of medical work in hospitals. And this is about more than just pay, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's really important to stress, you know, that while this protest is specifically about pay, that's why the junior doctors are striking. That's why the strikes happened. It is about much more than that as well. It's about people's fears for the future of the NHS and and their worries about working in a service that is teetering on the edge. I don't think any junior doctor has taken the decision to strike lightly. You know, I got the impression from people I spoke to that they're not really, you know, happy about having to do this. They feel really responsible for patients and they know it's going to have an impact on patient care. But as our listeners will know, you know, things are really bad in the NHS and junior doctors are working in incredibly tough conditions with huge workloads and massive staff shortages. You know, as that second doctor I spoke to there said, you know, filling rotors on a daily basis is a massive problem. So I think Junior doctors are genuinely worried if pay isn't sorted, more and more of their colleagues will leave or they'll go and work in other countries where they're better remunerated, where staffing levels are better. So the strike is about trying to make working conditions better by improving pay, I think, and and about making the government understand that it needs to invest in the NHS and fund it properly. And yes, that means pay, but also general funding. And it needs to do that if it wants a health system that works There was some research from Leeds University that I saw this week that shows the pressure that junior doctors are under. So the researchers asked 58 junior doctors in their first and second years to keep an audio diary for two months. The researchers said these diaries were harrowing to listen to. They found that doctors were suffering panic attacks and depression because of the levels of stress they were under. The diary entries detailed widespread understaffing and how this led to compromised patient care lack of support and junior doctors having to make complex clinical decisions that they really didn't feel capable of making. So that is the backdrop to this strike. 
Now, will pay alone solve all these problems? No, but it is a place to start. And one thing I think everyone can agree, and one of the main messages that the BMA is really trying to get across, is that junior doctors are not worth 26% less than they were in 2008. If anything, they're working harder than ever before because of the pandemic and the backlog and the staff shortages. And they're starting their careers with more debt than any other generation of doctors has experienced. So to be effectively paid so much less than they would have been a decade or so ago is just not right. And and that's true for all of the staff groups that have been striking and pushing for pay increases in recent months. We're recording this week's podcast the day after Jeremy Hunt presented his budget to the House of Commons. We've not necessarily had time to look at the details in any great depth, but obviously one thing that was widely trailed uh, that will affect doctors is changes to pension tax allowance. Nick, can you briefly explain again why pension tax allowances have been such a problem for so many GPs and other doctors? Yeah, so the the annual allowance and the lifetime allowance on pensions uh, limit the amount of pension savings that people can make with tax relief. Savings over the limits are subject to tax and breaching them means you can face a hefty tax bill. A tapering mechanism has also meant that for higher earners, the annual allowance is reduced. And despite a rise in the income level that that kicks in at, doctors have still been affected. And for several years, the BMA and others have been raising the alarm over doctors being forced to turn down extra work to avoid taking on extra jobs such as clinical director roles or anything that could increase their income to avoid tipping over the allowance uh, limits and winding up with a tax penalty. Some doctors found perversely that taking on more work would actually cost them more money. And in fact, some some doctors found that they needed to reduce the amount of work they did for the NHS to stay below annual and lifetime allowance limits or even to quit working for the NHS altogether. And, And for some doctors, including GP partners, income can rise for reasons that are outside their control. So such as when one partner leaves a practice and can't be replaced immediately, meaning, you know, other partners have to work longer hours to cover the gap and they get more income. So their pension contribution goes up and they're more likely to to breach that limit. So at a time when the NHS desperately needs to retain and expand its workforce, experienced doctors were being pushed out by this tax on pensions. To give an example, the Royal College of Physicians survey found in 2019 that nearly half of doctors had decided to retire at a younger age than they previously planned. And 86% of them cited pensions as a, a key factor in that. And that poll cited examples of tax penalties close to six-figure sums for some doctors. So that's the, uh, the, the problem in a nutshell. And so what exactly has uh, Jeremy Hunt changed in this budget? So the Chancellor announced that the annual allowance limit uh, will be raised from the, the current level of £40,000 to £60,000. And he announced that the lifetime allowance will be scrapped altogether. I mentioned that for higher earners, the annual allowance is tapered down and the uh, the income level that that kicks in at has been increased again in this budget to £260,000. And at the same time, the minimum level that annual allowance can be tapered down to has increased from £4,000 to £10,000. There are some other measures that could benefit GPs, such as a partial solution to a problem with negative pension growth. And basically, some doctors have parts of their pension split across different strands of the NHS pension scheme. These are different sections created when the pension scheme has changed over the years. 
And a change brought in through the budget will mean that doctors in this situation can offset negative and positive growth across these different parts of their pension. So they're more likely ultimately to be able to avoid tax charges from breaching the annual allowance limit. What's the general consensus? Will these measures actually make a difference and mean more doctors will keep working longer or maybe potentially do more work? The BMA and specialist accountants definitely seem to think so. One of the BMA's pension advisors, a hospital consultant called Dr. Tony Goldstone, said that the changes were a big win for retention of doctors in the NHS workforce. And ASMA, that's the, the Association of Specialist Medical Accountants, said that these changes would mean that the vast majority of GPs would no longer be affected by annual allowance tax charges. Obviously, they won't be affected by the lifetime allowance either because that won't exist. There are some caveats. Some higher earning doctors will still be affected by charges. And this isn't the tax on registered scheme, similar to the one in place of the judiciary that the BMA had called for. The BMA has also warned that things like the annual allowance limit will have to be kept under review to make sure it isn't eroded by inflation. So it's important the government doesn't just freeze that limit at £60,000 for the foreseeable future. But overall, although the pension changes don't go perhaps quite as far as the BMA wanted, the consensus seems to be that for a lot of doctors who could have been caught up in the pension tax issue, it will no longer be a problem. Okay, well, that's a really good news then. But um, aside from the pension tax changes, there wasn't much else in the budget for the NHS, was there? Yeah, and uh, and this this is a really important point to make, if not the biggest point. Obviously, pension tax has been a significant factor driving down the GP workforce and the medical workforce as a whole, but it's absolutely not the only issue. London-wide LMCs, for example, pointed out that although some early retirements might be avoided by these changes, general practice is still a really difficult place to work, and this won't change that. The pension changes won't change the fact that general practice staff are struggling to deliver safe care in the face of sky-high demand for appointments and with a shrinking workforce, putting in long hours and coping with long-standing underfunding of general practice. And they pointed out, too, that this doesn't change the fact that the imposed contract, as we mentioned earlier, doesn't deliver funding to support practices that have faced a huge rise in costs, largely for energy bills and staff. And on that subject of rising costs, I mean, the Institute for Fiscal Studies pointed out in its response to the budget that Jeremy Hunt didn't manage to find any new funding to improve the pay offer for, for broad swathes of public sector workers who are currently on strike. The IFS said around £6 billion might have been enough to offer an inflation-matching pay offer for the year ahead. And it called it a political choice not to deliver that. So while the pension changes are welcome, they won't go far enough to improve morale among doctors if they come alongside a failure to address erosion of pay over the past decade and a half. And for general practice which I think you touched on earlier, if salaried GPs are awarded a rise that's above the amount set out in the fixed five-year contract and there's no new money from government to support that, then practices will face another financial hit. So although pension changes go a long way to solving one major problem for the NHS medical workforce, there are plenty of others yet to be fixed. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening and thanks to Nick. I'm back next week, so please join me then. In the meantime, you can keep up to date with all the news affecting general practice on our website at gponline.com. 